Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today from sunny London is Patrick Hermanson, a researcher with Hope Not Hate, the co-author of The International Alt-Right, Fascism for the 21st Century, and the star of the Hope Not Hate doco Undercover in the Alt-Right about the year he spent infiltrating that movement in Europe and the US. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. Hi, thanks for having me on. Just to start with, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the work that you do and have done with Hope Not Hate, and I guess also with our expo in Sweden. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I've been with Hope Not Hate for about three years now, uh, probably. Part of that was the infiltration, um, and now I'm in, in the research team. So I'm um, looking at the far right from a bit more of a <laughs> safe distance. Hope Not Hate is, is both a campaign organization uh, as well as a research organization. So we try to really join those uh, two elements uh, and try to use our research to inform our campaigning and our organizing and our education work. Uh, I uh, look a lot at kind of social media and the far right, a lot of alt-right related stuff, more kind of obscure social media platforms, uh, conspiracy theory. Um, we are a small organization, so you, you kind of end up... Uh, pivoting between different fields and covering up wherever it's it's needed changes quite quickly. And I've been with Expo in Sweden before before I joined Hope Not Hate. I'm from I'm from Sweden. That wasn't obvious. That was a bit shorter and I wasn't with the research there. Um, that's more of a journalistic organization. So they publish a magazine a couple of times a year, which is kind of looks at the far right in Sweden historically and nowadays they do kind of um, bigger stories and kind of human interest stuff and look at you know, the victims of 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 the far right kind of the effects of the far right on society in general so it's it's a bit of a different organization and i have a huge uh, amount of of respect for 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 it and what they do Although it, in many ways, is quite different from from Hope Not Hate. The, the year you spent undercover with the alt right was uh, twenty seventeen. Uh, what have you seen that has changed since then? So I kind of got into kind of a traditional far right group in London who who had been around for quite a long time. You know, quite a high average age. Um, 
they had been around for much longer than the alt-right labor had been but they during that year took on that label so this was 2016 and 2017 so it was really when the alt-right kind of became a a thing that people in general knew about and since then i mean that year ended right after charlottesville which was of course an important move uh, an important event for that movement in that it separated it it uh, caused a lot of backlash a lot of things that happened since is very much a, a reaction or somehow a response to that in that it's it separated kind of the 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 the, the openly uh, racist side from the more culturally concerned side as they call themselves and since then i mean it had a a, a rough year in 2018 but then uh kind of slowly got back on track again and i think now it's still there but what's happened i guess it's that it kind of stepped back from this idea that they should have a lot of offline organizing and kind of going back into their strength, uh, which is online organizing. I guess it kind of realized that it was a bit, a bit uh, too, uh, a bit over the top to, to expect to have a big presence offline uh, back then. And it backfired, of course. Among the groups you encountered when you did your undercover work uh, was uh, the London Forum and figures like David Irving, both of which are fairly venerable institutions on the far right. I have uh, two questions. One is, uh, what's the current status of the forum and how is Irving regarded? And secondly, um, was there much evidence of a generational clash on the far right? The forum isn't going very well. The important thing for the London Forum, um, so the London Forum, basically, for, for those who don't know, is it's a conference, essentially, uh, that takes place a few times a year. Uh, in London. It's quite secretive in that you have to be invited or know someone. It's it's held at different locations and kind of they talk about themselves as a safe space for, for nationalists, <laughs> which is a bit funny in its own. Yeah. But uh, the, the secrecy is important because they do invite people uh, that are, they're not open with with their activism. One of those was Greg Johnson, for example. He was, of course, open with, with his activism, but he hadn't shown his face. So that that uh, the safety and security is very important, and it's it was kind of part of their uh, ASP, so to say. Um, that people could come there and network without being exposed. But we exposed Greg Johnson, for example, and many others. So it kind of lost that appeal. They lost a lot of trust from people and their organizers, of course. Uh, Stead Steadman is one of the important ones. But at, at the same time, uh, Jess Turner, or slightly after, Jess Turner has also been uh, jailed for, for anti-Semitic hate speech. So those two things combined meant that there hasn't been any bigger events from them. It doesn't mean that the people don't meet and they still organize kind of smaller social stuff, but it, it, it's not in a good condition. And then David Irving, I mean, he's an interesting character and he's, he's not part of kind of who organizes the forum, but he has been there several times. He is, you know, he's, he's part of the old guard. People respect him in that he's been around for a long time and you know, he has this ability to, to reach out and get attention. And they consider him as someone who 
can kind of help mainstreaming their ideas. But of course, he's a Holocaust denier, so his his appeal will always be slightly limited. Many of of, of kind of these more like national socialist open open Nazis and so on, yeah, they respect him, but they won't read his work and so on. Just recently, there was a, an article published by Richard McNeil Wilson titled The Murky World of Extremism Research. And in it, he writes that um, not all undercover research is, is wrong or, or not useful um, and that important undercover work is and has been conducted by journalists and activist groups such as Hope Not Hate. However, he adds that their work or your work is is grown from anti-racist work and is credible because it's not implicated in a securitised counter-extremism industry. He argues is guilty of replicating structural racism. So I guess my question is, how would you describe your undercover work and what do you think are the particular ethical challenges it presents and presented to you while you are undertaking it? Hmm. Thanks. Uh, I mean, there there's obviously uh, loads of ethical issues around undercover work. And as an organization, we try to get around that through, well, one is, is transparency, but we also have quite a few rules that you need to follow. But to begin with, um, the usefulness for, for our infiltration is that we are very quick on knowing what's what's happening in the far right. By having someone on the inside, we don't need to, to wait for it to appear on social media. Second is that you can learn a lot about the far right from from their public media, um, print and social media nowadays. But there are just some things that they don't want to get out there. They are very concerned with kind of their public image, at least sections of the movement, and to be on the inside there is just very useful. Uh, if you are open, uh, if you present yourself as a journalist or, you know, an outsider, they will give you one one kind of picture of, of the movement and they will give you another uh, if you are part of it. Um, the kind of the discussion around Jews is, is an important element, for example. Then second of that, uh, as like an organization that kind of, works against the far right. And one of our primary concerns, of course, is that why people join and what makes people leave and what is the attraction to these groups. And lots of those things are, are not strictly ideological and things you can read uh, through their publications. It's, it's social stuff. Uh, it's, it's personal stuff. Some individuals and, and leaders are charismatic and have connections and bring people in and it's these kind of smaller um kind of abstract stuff around social belonging and so on that are quite hard to get from 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 the outside and being on the inside is really important um as kind of researchers on the far right to have that there in the back of your head just to have that experience in the rest of your work, uh, I think is incredibly useful. Then ethical stuff. Of course, there are, are a bunch of things. I think one of the things I'm, I'm concerned about is, is to who you expose and who you don't expose. There is a risk to overexpose people and thereby making sure they can't really leave the movement. So we are quite concerned with only exposing people that um, are really public and really dangerous. 
and, and break down organizations and thereby letting people leave or opening up the possibility of them leaving. There are ethical issues around having uh, becoming friends, making friends with, with far-right people. And I think that in, in practice, it's less of a concern than people think. It's, it's a very common question you get. Like, um, do you sympathize with them? Are you friends with them? Uh, and so on. Does that make you uh, less prone to, to criticize them? And I think the answer is, is, is no. I think that in, you have in the back of your head, uh, you, you know why you're there. You, you're always going to a meeting with a purpose to get something, to understand something, to, to, to ask a question. So you never forget that you're an anti-fascist. I, I just don't think that's an issue. But it's it's something to be aware about. And I think that in some ways there is a bit of use in understanding that these are normal people as well that have really bad ideas that came from somewhere, you know. So so, so it's, it's got kind of pros and cons. Then kind of uh, lying to people... Um, of course, there are, there are ethical issues around that, but I would argue that kind of the, the, the win is, 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 uh, is worth the cost. There are lots of things to explore. Also, uh, another question I have, it, it kind of relates to a previous question about generations and uh, differences among different generations of activists. But in terms of the um, so-called identitarians, which is a relatively new term as I understand it, um, what do you understand is being expressed by that term? Is it is it a euphemism for, you know, some more familiar forms familiar forms of far right politics? And do you think there actually are there substantive differences between uh, individuals like uh, Martin Selner and so on, and previous generations of um, far right activists? Uh, if Martin Selner, if if it's a substantially new movement, is that what you're asking? Yeah, and why is it that identitarian has emerged? I guess in the same way that you know, there's a the alt right. It's an alternative to a a former articulation of far right politics. Um, it's it's new. It's distinctive. Identitarian also seems to share some of those qualities. What what's your understanding of um, you know what actually is motivating people to use this language, and is there underlying it real political differences? Yeah, I mean, I think this is always a concern when it comes to, to the far right and, and, and what different uh, sections of it calls itself. And, and the alt-right is, is, uh, is another case. And when it comes to the alt-right, I think there it comes to quite uh, practical things like modes of organizing. With identitarians, yes, there is an element of, of a kind of a euphemistic element that uh, you pick a new term that is supposed to not have the connotations or related to, to older far-right movements. I think that's probably part of, of the identitarian, of the, of the idea with the identitarian term. But there are definitely ideological uh, distinct elements to it in that they, they do see identity uh, as, as quite central. Why is that? Why is identity do you think, based on your experience, um, such a, a considered such a potent political instrument? But I think that the important thing about identitarians in, in Europe is it's 
of course, it's, it's in some way it's a development on kind of the anti-Muslim, um, the rise of anti-Muslim sentiments uh, in general. So the far right has turned from anti-Semitism uh, to kind of anti-Muslim, taking on kind of Muslims uh, from from the early 2000s. Uh, and that's something that in part has reflected mainstream views. To focus on those things and to talk about kind of your own identity as opposed to kind of what's wrong with the other. It, it's, it's a way of speaking that... Uh, is very much in our time. So you make yourself into uh, a victim uh, if they can have an identity, if if all these minorities can define themselves and get specific rights and specific spaces where they can, you know, be themselves and so on. Why can't we? So it's it's part of it is kind of highlighting a discrepancy, they argue, that... If, if all these minorities can have uh, specific spaces and, and specific rights and, and so on, why can't we? Why can't we, as English, also call, call ourselves English? Why can't we also have the right to have English-only spaces and, and, and so on? So it's it's an attempt to to latch on to... Um, it's a way to latch on to, to a language that we use about minorities and the minorities use uh, about themselves to assert their, their own rights. Uh, and of course, it's, it's a fundamental difference in, in that, well, um, it, it works differently when you're the majority. But I think it can still be efficient uh, in order to convince people that hasn't thought about these issues in depth. Uh, Hope Not Hate are currently running a campaign to have the neo-Nazi Satanist group, the Order of the Nine Angles, prescribed as a terror organisation. I feel like a lot of people, when they hear satanic, they think of, you know, the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s, or they think, you know, of LARPers playing Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, What is O9A and why should people take it seriously? Yeah, I know. I can feel like that myself sometimes. Uh I think that Onane is distinct, though. People can be Satanist, and there's so much related to kind of Satanist imagery and music and so on uh, that we have n- no problem with. Um, this is specifically Onane. Uh, Onane is, yeah, we call it a Nazi Satanist group. So it's not just religious, but it has an ideological element to it. They very much argue for the need to, like, violence is very central. So part of part of it by by its, its founder who is a man who goes by the name Mayet he talks about Onanes being used as it's so extreme so that he wants to dehumanize people he wants to uh, make it, it, its members so kind of used to violence and gore and death uh, that they don't have any limits so he uh, talks about kind of Onanea as as a way to create uh, completely desensitized soldiers, essentially, uh, in his uh, war. There are different kind of interpretations on the how central race is exactly what they want to achieve. But he has himself been part of several far right groups. But he's also been uh, a supporter of of Islamic um, terrorist groups. So, so it's, it's kind of complicated politically, but the central element is is violence, uh, sexual violence as well, is very important. And for that reason, 
they have. Uh, I mean, also there are also, also um, several cases where, where this violence has actually led led to to real things in the real world in the UK uh, and abroad. And it's for that reason we we uh, argue that it should be banned. Patrick, we're speaking as a, a global pandemic uh, grips the world, and um, obviously there's all sorts of discussions about what it means and and what it means, I suppose. Uh, for the right as well. One of the things that I've found looking at the uh, propaganda and the rhetoric that the alt-right and other similar movements have produced is they portray themselves as being opposed to what they term globalism. And in terms of the response to the virus, it's this virus and its effects is understood to be one of the outcomes of globalism and, and the appropriate responses to as many governments are, closing borders and restricting movement and so on. What's your assessment? You're looking at this now. What's what's come up for you when you're looking at the response of the alt-right to, to this virus? I mean, it's really interesting because um, the first weeks of the virus, uh, there were you know, the there were quite little consistency. People were arguing against each other and in different directions. Now we're kind of starting, I think, to see a bit more of a cohesive, um, a few, a, a bit fewer lines of argument. Uh, I think when it comes to the alt-right, there are those who, well, first of all, the alt-right are generally not denying the virus. There are elements, kind of the conspiracy theory-minded uh, groups uh, and elements of, of the movement that are outright denying it still, uh, but those are getting less and less. When it comes to the alt-right, um, right now, um, most people consider it a major issue, probably think that uh, that the governments are actually downplaying it more than uh, making it worse. Um, they are still very critical of, uh, or el- parts at least, are quite critical uh, about the current lockdowns, um, considering it kind of um, authoritarian, using it as kind of a, a, a proof that our current governments, kind of the libertarian or the liberals are actually the real authoritarians and look, they're closing it down and, and stopping freedom and, and so on. But then when it comes to open borders, how it spreads, of course, they are they are critical. They see it as an effect of globalism. Uh, we should travel less. We should close our borders. Loads of them have argued this. Greg Johnson has a big article on, on this on his website. He calls it the, the global virus or the globalist virus, something like that. They see it as an effect of, 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 of uh, globalism, of travel, of open borders. All right. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thanks very much for joining us, Patrick. Thanks. If people want to get the book, it's called The International Alt-Right, Fascism for the 21st Century, and is available through Routledge Press. Uh, and people can find you on Twitter at Patrick underscore H. And thanks very much for joining us, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. Global Intifada is up next. Uh, we'll catch you next week. See you later.
Cause you 